Welcome, this is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and the things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starn. And thanks for joining us. We're still in the early stages of these podcasts, but uh, we now have a website. You can find us at writerslatitude.com. You go there, you can also follow me on Facebook or Twitter, and we'd love to hear your feedback and questions about the podcast. My guest today is Tony Knighton, a writer of crime fiction from Philadelphia, whose most recent book is the novel Three Hours Past Midnight. That book followed his debut, which was Happy Hour and Other Philadelphia Cruelties, a novella and collection of short stories that was published in 2015. Both of these were published by Crime Wave Press. So, Tony, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you. So Tony is unique among writers, and I'm really glad to have him here. Well, I think most of all the writers I've had on the show so far have MFAs, as do I, and so many writers you see, all the credentials they have. I think Tony has credentials that are probably more valuable to a writer, certainly for a crime writer. Uh, He's got more than three uh, decades of experience as a fireman with the Philadelphia Fire Department, and he still serves as a lieutenant. Um, he, Tony knows how to save your house from burning or save your life if you're in an accident or have a health emergency. So I feel a little bit safer for me and Anthony sitting in this room here with him. Um, he also worked as a roofer for many years. So he's had a perspective of above uh, looking down while, while putting new roofs on homes and, and buildings. Uh, while many writers, and this includes me, often sit inside in like comfortable house shoes or teach classes on comfy college campuses, uh, Tony's been out in the streets and observed the world and its flawed humanity up close. I think he's, Tony's probably seen more than most writers I know put together. Um, I first met Tony about four or five years ago when we both were reading at a Noir at the Bar event, which is one of the periodic literary reading of crime writers. They do it in Philadelphia pretty often, but New York and other places around the country. They're a good time if you can find a Noir at the Bar to attend. Um, When I learned he was a fireman, I immediately thought of Larry Brown, the late, great Mississippi writer whom I've admired for many years. Um, Larry Brown was an influence on my work, and I've written a few essays about him, and have really, uh, you know, he's one of my top favorite writers to read and go back and reread. Um, As I got to know Tony, I think the parallels in Tony's life and Larry Brown's lives are pretty remarkable. After high school, they both served in the Marine Corps. Uh, they didn't attend college except to later in life to take writing courses, and, and both worked many odd jobs, um, and both became firemen, and they began to write later in life. So I've, as the more I've read Tony's work and got to know him, I've sort of come to consider Tony as the Larry Brown of Philadelphia. Now, I plan to talk with Tony about Larry Brown later in the podcast, but now I want to, I want to talk about Tony's work. Tony's work is very uh, grounded in the city of Philadelphia, the good neighborhoods and the, but definitely the bad neighborhoods and the rough sections. And uh, I think it really, um, you know, maybe it's not fair to say bad neighborhoods, it's say neighborhoods with character and grit. And um, although I grew up in rural Georgia, I lived a lot of places, including five years in a row house in the Fishtown section of Philadelphia. And my wife and I had not been there very long, maybe a couple of weeks. We were just getting used to the neighborhood and living in a row house. And we had a little small courtyard in the back that we were having a barbecue. And some friends from out of town had come down to visit. We're hanging out in the yard. And we had this little narrow little alleyway that ran along a number of the row houses and ended right in front of our 
uh, fence in the back. It was a, a fence with a locked gate. And this huge teenage boy, he must have been 6'3 or 6'4, w- at least 240 pounds, comes running fast as he can down our alley, which goes nowhere, right to the end. And he gets to our gate and he says, there are like several guys in a purple van out here who are going to kill me. <laughs> and my wife, being the good soul that she is, goes, oh, I'll let you in and we'll hide you. And I look at this kid and I'm like, no, no, you can stay there, but we're not unlocking the gate for him. And you got a little mad at me about this, but I didn't have a good feeling about this enormous teenager. So we let him stay there and he hung out for, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes and went out and peeked and then he was gone. So he, uh, I don't think the guys in the purple van killed him. I did check the newspaper for a couple of days, but I think he was okay. But I, I was, as I was reading Tony's uh, most recent novel, the, the novel, Three Hours Past Midnight, there's a scene early in there. There's um, the protagonist is has stolen a safe, which is pretty promptly stole from him, and his partner is killed. And he's trying to figure out what's going on, and he sees a couple of guys in a red Ford Econoline van following him. And I thought, I believe it. This this feels like a little bit of a the van uh, following people around Philadelphia. I certainly believe so. Tony, I want you to tell me first why would you choose a red Ford Econoline van for that scene? But then in a larger sense, tell me about your work and how it's firmly grounded in Philadelphia. Uh, that's an interesting question. I, um, my first choice was almost arbitrary. Um, the only reason I did a red Ford Econoline was I featured that kind of vehicle in a novel that I wrote that never got published. So I just thought I'd put it in there. And then... Later in the book, as it started taking shape for me, it made sense because, and I don't want to give anything away, but these guys had to be able to transport something that took up size. And beyond that, after I was finished, I realized it was a really good choice because Ford Econoline vans and Ford F-150 pickup trucks are the most popular vehicles in America of their type. And with the exception of the target of the initial crime, pretty much everybody, all the characters, are working-class people. Um, and and it, it kind of enforced it. I mean, these weren't mobsters driving Cadillacs. These were, these were work, you know, blue-collar guys. And... Uh, so I, I, I never changed. I never deviated from it being a red Ford Econoline. Okay. Something you've probably seen in the streets of Philadelphia pretty often. Tell me about you know, how f- the city of Philadelphia informs your work and why everything is so grounded in the city. Well, I know the city. Um, I've lived here almost all of my life, and I've, uh, you know, I've, I've, done, I've worked within the city limits for most of my working life. Even before I got on the fire department, most of the the work, I worked dumb construction jobs and did roofing, and most of that was inside the city. And uh, all of my time firefighting has been for the city of Philadelphia. And I've been moved around, and you really get to know the city. You get to know the neighborhoods. And, uh, I, I mean, I have written things that didn't take place here, but... I have more fun, I think, writing about things that take place in Philadelphia. 
I'm working on something now that's remote and, um, it's not the same. I mean, I, I still enjoy it and I'm having fun and I can kind of make it up as I go along, but I have to, it's a specific place. So I have to stay in touch with people who know, um, more for my own, for myself. I don't want to write something that somebody's going to pick up someday and say, ah, no way. So. Well, it definitely seems like you've got the map of the city in your head, ingrained in your head, and you know it well. I want you to read, actually, a short, just a short paragraph from Three Hours Past Midnight uh, from the bottom of page 120, where the, uh, your character is navigating a city street. Okay. I entered the narrow alleyway that ran through the length of the block from Stiles to Thompson and trotted north, hurtling some bags of trash and a tire and turning my shoulder sideways to negotiate a tight spot where an Alanthus tree pushed its way through a crack in the pavement. My heel slipped on a pile of dog shit. Yeah, so thanks for reading that. I mean, you know, my, I've been, I lived in the city for five years, and now just right across the river here in New Jersey and spent a lot of time. You know, Philadelphia is a beautiful city. I mean, the Art Museum, Independence Hall, historic architecture, it's a beautiful place. But there are a lot of rough edges. And I mean, actually, I think like, you know, when we first moved here, I was returning a U-Haul truck from Fishtown. I was driving up through North Philadelphia and saw like a vacant row home with the windows boarded up and people sitting around outside. And a guy came running out with a bucket of feces and just dumped it in the street and everybody went scattering. And this is my first day, you know, move. I just moved my stuff and I'm like, oh man, what have I gotten into? So there, there, there's rough edges out there, but then there's also... I mean, it's a city with a lot of character and a lot of beauty. So I want you to talk to me about your feelings about the city and what it means to you. Um, your anecdote is interesting because one of the things I do with new guys on the fire department when we are working in a neighborhood that has a lot of vacant dwellings um, they start to get a feel for things. I say, do you know why they're pooping in five-gallon buckets? And they'll, they'll look at me and say, no. I say, because the bathtub is full. <laughs> um, I'm not kidding. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of rough edges. And the geography of the city kind of determines a lot of this stuff. 70% of the housing stock in the city of Philadelphia is row homes. And most of them are bisected by alleyways that are narrow and they're sort of public property, but they're kind of private too. And um, they become a dumping ground in some, some circumstances. Uh, I think any, I'm not sure what the exact number is, but it's safe to say there are upwards of 10,000 vacant buildings in the city. And, um, I think it's been lessening as time goes by, but, uh, you know, they, they become playgrounds and jungle gyms and places for homeless people to squat in or use for sex or shoot drugs or, or whatever. So, uh, yeah, the geography of the city itself kind of determines how life goes in a way. But tell me about your feelings for the city. I know that there are lots of, I've 
lots of rough spots of it, but uh, you have a fondness for it, right? I, I certainly do. And I, I've said before that in a lot of ways, the city of Philadelphia is this horrible place that I love very dearly. Um, it's home. I mean, that's the, the bottom line is it's home. And, my, you know, all my friends are here. And, uh, or most of my friends and most of my family and it's where I feel most comfortable. You know, anywhere you're a native, you feel most at ease. Um, and there's just something about it, you know, and, and I guess someone from somewhere else would say the same things about their hometown, but that's what Philadelphia is for me. I want you to read another section, and there's a section earlier, actually, in Three Hours Past Midnight, uh, where the narrator's being chased by cops, and the, the van has, I think, recently appeared, uh, in the Tenderloin section of the city of Philadelphia, which is near the Reading Viaduct, which is an abandoned, elevated railway line leading into Center City. Uh, also, like, there's these old, neglected, mercantile properties where a punk band is practicing, so he hears that, and there's a reference to that. But I want you to read this paragraph. Uh, about your character running here through this uh, through this place. Oh, okay. Three doors down was a building with apartments on its upper floors and a metal fire escape bolted to its back face. I ran down a flight, stepping over the railing and jumped from the third floor across the gap to the viaduct, landed and rolled. It knocked the wind out of me, and for a moment I worried I might have rebroken my shoulder, but got to my feet and ran. The punk band played on, oblivious. One of the cops in the alley saw me go overhead and shouted, he's up on the tracks. Another on the roof tried to trace my path with the beam of his mag light, but lost me in the ghetto palms and creepers that grew up through the rails and fouled the catenary. None of the officers followed me across the gap. They weren't risking a broken ankle for cops' pay. Yeah, thanks for reading. I like this description. This is like one of the interstitial spaces in the city that a lot of crime takes place, and you're, and I guess firefighters are drawn there. But talk, talk to me about that scene, but also like all of these interstitial spaces in the city that uh, a lot of your work takes place, your characters are end up in. I, uh, one of the things that I noticed early on in my career as a firefighter was that we spent time in places where most adults never tread uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, um, a brush fire along a railroad right of way, an accident. Um, in Philadelphia, it's a popular place and some popular thing to do in certain neighborhoods to steal a car, drive it into the woods, and light it up. And when I say woods, I mean not so much park, just as areas of the swaths of property that just nobody ever did anything with, these undeveloped green spaces, um, the area bounded by Roosevelt Boulevard, Adams Avenue, and Wyoming Avenue, um, huge amount of acreage behind Friends Hospital that just nobody's ever done anything with. Um, areas along Cobbs Creek Parkway in West Philadelphia. Uh, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, areas around the railroad in, in uh, off Aramingo Avenue. And um, these 
areas are found all over. And, and I remember playing in places like this when I was a little boy. Um, so really, other than kids, people doing things they shouldn't be doing, and cops and firemen, nobody ever sets a foot in these these areas. And, and it's uh, I kind of got a kick out of it. Well, you have a lot of uh, descriptions of people doing things they shouldn't be doing. So, uh, but I think like the good, like the description of the catenary there, which is the archway under like a bridge, right? I mean, no, the catenary system is the um, the infrastructure, uh, the, the system of towers and and uh, cables and wires that okay. electric trains run on. Okay, um, basically where the the train or the trolley draws its power from. The, oh, okay. The, the structure coming off the vehicle is a pantograph. These are both wonderful words. Yeah. Well, you've got a good grasp of all this type of architecture and buildings. And the, uh, I mean, while these are definitely entertaining crime novels, they're also, you know, insightful for how the city's put together and how it works. So I really, really enjoy that. Um, in addition to being a fireman, well, as part of being a fireman, I should say, you've done a lot of work uh, as an EMT or, you know, done ambulance rides, which has brought you into car. And I think you told me that sometimes the more interesting stories come from the ambulance service that we're doing the service on the ambulance than it does from fighting fires, because I guess you're dealing with humans and their stories. But there's one in particular. Um, there was a bar called The Place that, uh, that you've told me about. So I wanted, want you to tell me a little bit about that incident so the place this was the place is at 60 or was at 65th and Wincote Avenues and sort of in Oak, Oak Lane and this would have been probably 1992 or 93 and I was taking my turn on the the ambulance the the medic unit and uh, I was working with my friend Fred and we pulled up, and it was early evening in the summertime. It was still sunny out. And uh, when you get one of these runs, dispatch tries to help you out. And they, they said that this was for a head injury. And uh, anyway, we the place is a bar. It's a tap room. And we walked in, and there's a bartender making drinks and patrons drinking them. And they kind of looked at me and bartender pointed to the men's room and said he's in there and I walked in and kneeling at the bathroom sink was an adult male but his head was facing 180 degrees from the way it should be in other words if he was able to put his chin down, it would have touched his spine. And he, he was very, very dead. Um, and I won't go into all the gory details, but he was very dead. And, and somebody had turned his head around for him. And I kind of backed out of the place, out of the, the bathroom and out of the bar, looking around for somebody with really big arms and you know, I determined to stay away from him. And I backed all the way till I sort of bumped into the ambulance and Fred was still trying to talk on the radio and I kind of took the handpiece from him and, and said, we have a homicide here. We're going to need police. And um, 
we stayed on that. We were put out of service as soon as the police got there, and they we made a statement, and the homicide detective showed up, and, and we handed them our statements and went back into service. And uh, a few hours later, I ran into one of the cops in the hospital, and I, I said, what was happening there? And the, I mean, the odd thing was the the patrons and the bartender were completely unmoved. I mean, they... Uh, the police locked the door and they all just sat in there and kept drinking and I guess gave statements and nobody seemed concerned. And uh, this cop, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, police officer told me that the dead guy had been the neighborhood thief and had robbed everybody, everybody on the block and beyond three or four times a piece. And someone dispatched him and Nobody really cared. So, uh, I mean, this was, if not the strangest thing I've ever seen, it is certainly up there, certainly in the top five. Yeah. And that was before you started to write, uh, write fiction? Oh, yeah. 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 So at that point, maybe you had no choice to, to, to write some crime stories. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> You introduced a character in a short story called Mr. Wonderful that was featured in uh, your novel and story collection. It's one of the stories in Happy Hour and Other Philadelphia Cruelties, which is a great title, by the way. Uh, I think Philadelphia Cruelties really gets gets to what happens in a lot of these stories uh, perfectly. But you developed a character you never name, and he's introduced in the story in Mr. Wonderful, and then he goes on to be the protagonist and the narrator of Three Hours Past Midnight. His voice actually is the one that you've heard in the pieces that that uh, t- Tony's read here. So, t- tell Tony, tell me about this: who he is and how he came to you. Um, I'll start with how he came to me. I, uh, Mister Wonderful, was an unusual story for me because it started more with a visual, um, a situation of a man trapped upside in a car that's upside down and usually I before I start putting a pencil to paper I I have more of an idea than that but I I just had that starting point and a few things came to me right away um, I put them in the woods in a shallow stream so there was water rolling over the ceiling liner over his head and uh I gave him a broken collarbone because you see that at a lot of car accidents, the shoulder strap. And I had him hear a siren go by. Then it was just a matter of pragmatism. For the story to keep going, I had to get him out of the car. And I knew he'd be soaked. And and so I made it wintertime and it was cold. And then I had to get him out of the woods. And then, you know, and it just, at a certain point, I knew the whole story, but it was one of the first stories that I wrote, one of the only stories that I wrote where I was making it up as I went along. And it was an interesting way for me to write. 
I liked the story when I was finished, but more than that, I liked the character. And I really thought that this guy would be worth doing something else with. And uh, the initial crime in Three Hours Past Midnight, I'd had the idea of doing for a long time. Um, these guys burgle the home of an uh, infamous Philadelphia politician. Um, and he's based on a real guy. And um, a few of the things that my, the character did, the real guy did too. But anyway, I, I, I had that idea for a crime because I, I thought this guy really needs to be robbed. But I, I never went anywhere with it because I could never see who would do it. And suddenly I realized, well, this guy could do that and uh, took it from there. And it's odd because usually when I write a character, I, I can kind of see them after a little bit. And I still can't see this guy's face. I never gave him a name. And I sort of picture him as being average, sort of medium height and medium build. Um, I imagine he's in his early 30s, but I'm not even sure of that. And the closest thing to any kind of de physical description I've ever given him is in both the short story and the novel, I'll have a character say, upon meeting him, you're not what I expected. And that's, you know, it's totally up to you what you think they expected and what this guy is. And I, I kind of like it like that. I, I don't give him, I, real, I hinted a little bit of backstory, but he really doesn't have a backstory. He just sort of is. And I mean, you know, he, from having read him, he's, he's a professional thief and he's certainly not afraid of violence and killing people. It's, it comes, you know, as part of the job. So he's, uh, um, but you obviously also, you know, you have empathy for this character and you sort of, you can see him uh, from different levels. Yeah. His first act of violence is kind of a surprise, but it shouldn't be because all through the first all through that first story, he talks about doing what's necessary. And that's what he does. And he doesn't take any particular pleasure in hurting anybody. It's just a matter of survival or a matter of I, I gotta do what I gotta do. And uh Shame on you if you get in my way, you know. If I have to get through that door and you're standing there, I'm, I'm getting through the door. So he's savage that way. He, but he, again, he doesn't take any particular pleasure in hurting anybody. So, Yeah, well, I like what you said about how he was creative. Because I, mean, I think, like, great fiction is really character-driven. You know, the, the, you have a, a strong character. And the things, you know, you often remember about, books that I've read is I may not remember what happened, but I'll remember the character and remember even like some, you know, you think back to Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I don't remember the plots of all the individual things that happened, but I remember, you know, I remember Holmes and I remember Watson and their relationship and how they do things. I may not remember what they did, but I, I think you've got a character here that's really got, you know, distinctive, uh, interesting you know, things that, that keeps people reading and can, can certainly does drive the novel. Well, you reference a uh, uh, corrupt Philadelphia politician, and uh, uh, Philadelphia political corruption plays a part in this, but also in uh, Happy Hour, the uh, novella 
that that's the uh, and wonderful. I haven't talked much about it, but it's a, well, the first thing of yours that I read, and I really, really enjoy that too. So why um, why does political corruption make its way into Philadelphia crime novels? Um, because it's there. I think corruption is endemic to any big city or maybe even any anywhere. But, um, you know, wheels need to be greased. There's things that fall outside the system that are necessary. Um, some years ago, I heard on a national radio program an expert in crime statistics reference Philadelphia. And he just said that Philadelphia government always cries poor. He said, but really there's plenty of money in Philadelphia. It's just that the mayor and city council give it all away to their friends. I mean, he wasn't even making a judgment when he said that. He said, this is just the way it works here. And if you're going to take one of these jobs, this is what you're going to have to do. Um, it's there and it's not a surprise. And what I think I've accomplished in my books is to show the way real corruption really works. Um, I mean, police corruption isn't necessarily about a bunch of bad cops committing crimes and doing these horrible things. Real police corruption means that there's bums. You know, there's guys on the job that are afraid or they're bums and they don't want to do anything. And, and that's as much corruption as robbing a drug dealer is. It's what I found interesting and does not get any attention in books like mine. So I, I thought I'd do that. Yeah, and you've worked for the city for, you know, more than three decades now. So you're a city employee and still are. I mean, in some ways, are the, these stories and novels uh, a way to rectify or respond to some of the corruption that you've seen? No, nah, it's just fun. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it just is, you know, and you work any job for the city and it's, I mean, anywhere you work, it, it, you know, some guys do a little more than everybody else. Some guys do a little less. Somehow the task gets accomplished. short story Sunrise, which is included in Happy Hour and Other Philadelphia Cruelties, is just a fantastic story. I, mean, I think it's as good as any short story I've read in The New Yorker or anywhere else. You know, the best of anthologies, whatever. I mean, it's a speculative story that takes place in Philadelphia in the future, maybe 25, 50 years from now, when the ozone layer has been mostly obliterated and the city's temperature, even at Christmas time, is so hot that no one can really go outside during the day for any any moments of uh, for very long, and it's told by a roofer, which was certainly not going to be an easy job when the temps are well above a hundred degrees and uh, global warming has uh, heated everything up to the to this level. And in the story, this roofer is trying to get medical care for his child who has cancer, and uh, it's really just a harrowing, you know fantastic piece piece of fiction i think so i want you to tell me about that story and where it came from 
Well, thanks. And uh, that story is, is one of those of mine that kind of simmered for a long, long time before I really got going on it. Um, I had two or three pages, and they all took place inside the man's home. And as soon as I got him and his kid outside, I didn't know what was going to happen. And it just sat there for a couple of years, at least. And I'd, I'd look at it, and I'd think about it. Um, like 99% of scientists in the world, I believe in climate change. And uh, having done a lot of work outside, I started to wonder when... What's it going to be like when things get so bad that outdoor work pretty much has to be done at night because daylight hours make things untenable? And uh, I kind of took it from there. I mean, it's, it's basically the story of a man taking his son to the hospital, trying to seek out medical care. And when I was finished, I realized that he's thwarted. In, in, in his efforts. And I realized when I was done that this is the reality of perhaps more than half the world on a good day. And it's going to be shocking to us in America, especially urban America, when this becomes our reality. I mean, I didn't name the illness, but I, I envisioned a, a little boy with, with asthma, which is for the most part, very easily managed. And uh, when things get bad and systems are overtaxed and resources become more dear, the weak are going to start falling away first. And that's going to be grim for people who aren't used to that. And that's, you know, um, eventually I saw the guy's path and I, oddly, I saw the end before I saw anything else. And then I just sort of connected the dots. Um, I have, a, a, I have a, a passage that deals with after the hospital, he's trying to do what he can do, and he seeks out black market sources for medication that are chancy, iffy. And um, I, I just saw that as a natural a situation that naturally follows civilizational collapse. You know, I think this story is neat because it's not like most of your other stories are on the ground, crime fiction, and set in contemporary times. This is, is looking forward, but it's really a, a fantastic story. I mean, the one and you spoke to a class that I taught back earlier in the year, and a student asked about what the meaning of this story was. And at first, your response was, yeah, you weren't trying to teach a lesson, but you were just trying to tell a story. And it, there wasn't a meaning to it. And I said, I remember thinking how I disagreed. I mean, I think that maybe you did, obviously you didn't set out to say, I'm going to do a message about climate change, but that that's part of that story. And I mean, this there's even a, you know, a, I don't know if you'd call it a genre, but a group of you know, fiction about cli-fi, climate fiction. And this would fall into that category. I mean, what, you know, it's sort of a warning if global warming goes unchecked. Um, you thought about that and then you emailed me the next day and said, you know, you didn't, you didn't set out to put a meaning into it, but you think that it does mean something. So talk to me a little bit about meaning in fiction and, you know, maybe how it's created and your thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the young woman asked me that 
And without hesitation, I said no. And I think I was partially correct because when I set out to write a story, that's what I'm doing. I'm setting out to write a story. Most of the time, if there's something deeper to all this, I don't really notice it until I'm like most of the way along. And then if I kind of like that idea, I can sort of nudge it along a little bit further. But I didn't have to nudge anything in this story. It, it Once I, like I said, I had the beginning, and once I had the end, I could fill in everything in between pretty easily. It was just a matter of some geographic choices and whatnot. So I never really, you know, I mean, I never envisioned this changing the minds of the Koch brothers, um, you know, or, or ardent climate change deniers. Um, but it is kind of a cautionary tale. And, um, I mean, it is a speculative piece. And I've never written anything before or since that was speculative. And really the guts of it are sort of like anything else I've written in that it has a lot to do with corruption. Um, one of the guy's final hopes is that a connection might do something for him. I mean, he's really grasping at straws. And uh, that's kind of how things work. Yeah. Well, I like the way that, that the story came together for you. And I do think I've, you know, you can see sometimes writing where somebody has, they want to set out and tell, give you a message. And it seems so ham-handed and deliberate that it's just not readable. I mean, I think going to the level of, telling a story and creating real characters and you know your th themes reveal reveal itself as you develop the story and i think that's what's happened here i mean i saw an interview with uh orin pamuk the turkish uh novelist who won the nobel prize and maybe 10 or years or so ago and you know, he's you know very much analyzed and a lot of meaning and philosophy in his his work and they asked him about that and he says you know i, I don't think about that i try to create a character and get them through the door and I think that's how, you know, writers have to work as opposed to setting out. I mean, you, you, if you have like a real specific point you want to make, you should probably write an essay. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, I think you're doomed to fail if you're writing fiction with the idea of a theme first. Um, I, think it's, I think it's right along the lines of, um, I mean, my, one of my big faults when I first started writing, not, not short stuff, but when I found I was writing a novel, because I never set out to write a novel, but I was 40 pages, pages into a story, and I was like, oh, I'm writing a book. Oh. And um, one of the big mistakes I made with that was the story didn't really start until about the 50th page because I thought, I needed to explain things. I needed to set things up, I, you know. I, and um, looking back on it now, I didn't need those first 50 pages at all. And that sort of caused that novel to fail because of that. And I think, I think looking for, you know, starting with the idea of a, a theme would make for the same sort of failure. I mean, I think you have to have good characters and explore. Th that's the fun thing about writing fiction is you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where these characters are going to go. And you can explore such things that way. Well, tell me about your reading life and 
you all know about your reading life and then when you actually started writing. Oh man. Um, I, I, I've always read, I, I mean, it's a cliche, but I read voraciously. Um, and mostly for entertainment. I, I read, you know, stuff that I found fun. I mean, all through high school, I, I read a lot of funny stuff. I read a lot of Max Shulman and Peter DeVries. And, uh, you know, I read a lot of junk, but I read a lot of good stuff, too. I, um, I read the first two of John Updike's Rabbit books, and then I read the rest of them as they came out. Um, I'm a big fan of John O'Hara. I like John Cheever, too. I like the Johns. Um, but, you know, I, I, I read a lot of, a lot of junky stuff, too, that, that's good. Like, uh, you know, I, I read a lot of the Executioner books and the Destroyer books. Um, I still love stuff like that. I mean, as far as crime fiction, I found out about Jim Thompson and Richard Stark, and, and I devoured all that stuff. I just love it. Um, I like Dashiell Hammett. Same thing. I, I I always say I owe a great debt to Dashiell Hammett and Jim Thompson and Richard Stark. You know, I stole all over from those right. guys. And Richard Stark being the Donald Westlake's yes. pen name for the Parker novels. Yeah. yeah. Well, when did you start writing? Um, I started writing probably in the early aughts. Um, the entire time I read. When I would read something really bad, I'd think to myself, I could do better than that. And th that's as far as it ever went. And um, some things changed, and I made some resolutions, uh, you know, 2000, 2001, that among other things, instead of thinking or talking about stuff, I was going to start doing stuff. And uh, writing was just one of those things. And I, you know, I just started putting stuff down and, and a couple of those stories were okay. And most of them were pretty bad, but I, I just kept going with it. And that would have been about your early forties, I guess, when you got started, right? Uh, I'd like to say my early forties, <laughs> but, um, a little, probably my later forties. promised earlier and I, I wanted to talk about the with you the, the writer and fellow fireman uh larry brown so tell me about how you learned about larry brown uh, it's uh it's sad because i didn't know about larry brown until the day after he died and uh a fireman i knew told me that that afternoon they had rebroadcast um terry gross's interview with Larry and that, you know, he said, this guy passed away. He was a fireman. And it, my friend knew that I was trying to write. He said, yeah, yeah, you ought to listen to this. So I listened to, uh, they replayed the, the interview at seven that evening and I listened to it. And my first inclination was that this was a really bright, really nice guy. And, uh, I, 
I loved listening to him, and I determined to go out and get some of his stuff. But I, I was really saddened because he sounded like the kind of dude that I probably could have gotten his phone number from the Oxford. He was a fireman in Oxford, Mississippi. And I probably could have called the local down there and gotten his phone number and called him up, and I'll bet he would have talked to me. Um, he sounded like that kind of dude. And uh, so I, I missed that opportunity. But I, I did read his books, and, and I, I don't write anything like him, but I felt an immediate affinity for his work, if that makes sense. And um, subsequent to that, I've, I've heard a few other interviews, um, recordings of interviews that he gave. And um, I like what he has to say about writing and the way he feels about it. In particular, he, his personal rule is trouble on the first page. And I took that to heart. I try to put trouble on the, if I can put trouble in the first sentence, I feel great. Well, and you, you, he died in 2003. So that was about the time you were, uh, were getting started. Yeah. We're, we're, we're starting yeah. to make some progress as a writer, getting serious about it. So, um, how did it make you feel to know that there was another, even though he had just passed, that there'd been a fireman who'd been a successful writer? Cause they, I can't think of many. No, um, it felt really good. In a way, it felt like I had permission to do this because um, I was just taking a shot in the dark. I didn't really, I, I knew one, I, I knew our friend John McGorn, crime fiction writer from Philadelphia, par excellence. Um, I knew John from the music scene in the 80s. We both, we were both bass players and we played in different bands together. So I knew him from around, and, and John's a, I mean, he's a sweetheart of a guy. He's just really nice, really generous. And I had, I had talked a little bit to him because he was, um, I, I knew he was writing before he got published. And then he, you know, he's had some success, and, and I talked to him when I started writing, and he was, he was very generous. But other than that, I didn't really know any writers. And... I didn't know that it was that a guy like I could do it, like me, could do it, and um, I, it, it felt good that way. I think you said at one point that maybe that you and Larry Brown might have crossed paths in the Marines. It turns out our enlistments they overlapped. Larry was about three years older than me, but our time in the Marine Corps overlapped. Uh, we were both in for two years, and he spent time at Camp Lejeune, and I spent a lot of time at Camp Lejeune. So it's not inconceivable that we might have walked past each other. I mean, who knows? One of his books that uh, he wrote, well, fiction and nonfiction, he wrote a book in 1994 called On Fire about his experience in the Oxford, Mississippi Fire Department. I want you to read just one short paragraph from near the, the beginning of that book for us. These men are like a family to me, and the only thing I can relate it to is being in the Marine Corps where everybody, black or white or brown or tan, wore the same uniform, all assembled for a common purpose, a brotherhood. This thing's the same thing. And that's where he's, This I probably could have set that up a little better, that he's talking about, you know, the feeling of 
camaraderie he has in the firehouse and he compares it to the Marines. How, how does that similar to your experience? Um, yes and no. And, and uh, it's just past Memorial Day. And I, I said to somebody who knew I was in the service and, and I, I mean, Memorial Day is meaningful to me because I feel like I was incredibly fortunate to have been born in the United States. I, I, I know I was fortunate. Um, it's one of the best places there is, maybe the best, but I know that I owe a debt of gratitude to the people who made that, made the opportunities that this country affords us possible. Um, I, I've always felt kind of quiet about my own military service because I was never in combat. And I did two years. And, you know, by the time I sort of got into the swing of things, I was walking out the door with a discharge. And um, I feel my, my service for the city of Philadelphia as a firefighter is a lot more meaningful to me because, I mean, any of these jobs are a privilege. And as a fireman, I've been able to do substantive things as far as, helping other people. So it, it means more to me. But yes, it, it is a gang of guys that are assembled for a unified purpose. Um, well, there's another part of that book where he talks about, um, you know, he doesn't really feel comfortable when people always thanked him for being a firefighter and thanks for this and thanks for that. And he said, you know, the city thanks us twice a month. Yeah. And I thought that's a, a good line. Well, one thing, you know, while firehouses, you know, may not be literary hotbeds of writers, I think there is really a strong storytelling culture within the firehouses because obviously you have a lot of downtime where people are together. And so tell me a little bit about the storytelling culture in, in the firehouses that you've worked. Uh, it, it, it is rich. Uh, and not everybody's a storyteller, but most places – have someone who is good. I mean, my um, my last officer before I became promoted, um, a man named Jack Plumley. Jack passed away in 1999, but um, oh, he's just a, one of the greatest guys around. And and man, he could tell a story. Um, I mean, everywhere I've been in the fire department, there's guys who can just have you rolling. I, I had a chief who he would come over to the station and start telling stories. And it was like you're, you felt like his grandchild. It was like, hey, chief, tell us about the Baltimore trip again. You know, like the retelling was saying, ah, oh, the old Baltimore trip. And, and he'd tell us that story. Um, yeah, it is a big part of the life. Do you think in some ways all the, the storytelling is, in the way the storytellers you've heard has informed some of your writing? Maybe. Because I've been around long enough to hear different people tell the same story. And you can see who can tell it in a way that works. And you can see who can't. And if you think about it, you can analyze why this person fails and this person succeeds. A lot of it's just information, you know, the the failing guy leaves something critical out of his story. But mostly it's timing, it's pacing, 
And uh, it's the same thing that people talk about in writers' workshops. Why, yeah. why does this story work or not? So uh, uh, definitely a parallel there. Well, one dis- distinction um, that you have from, from Larry Brown is uh, you know, Larry was a heavy smoker. Uh, he he did, did a good bit of drinking and certainly I'm sure ate a lot of red meat. You, on the other hand, have quit smoking your time, have quit smoking, drinking, and eating meat. And I'll, I think certainly those are probably uncommon for firemen, but certainly for writers too. So tell me about these decisions. Um, probably just more of a hard head. Um, I, I, I quit smoking fairly early on. I smoked for about a dozen years. And uh, I used to say quitting's easy. I've done it hundreds of times. And one time I just quit and it, it, it stuck. Um, well, it was 1982 in Philadelphia. You started seeing cigarettes for sale and vending machines at $1 a pack. It had ticked over to three digits. And to me, that was kind of a signpost. No, I'm cheap. Um, I quit drinking in 2000, mostly because I'd had enough. Um, and I'll leave that at that. Uh, and uh, I think two, maybe a little over two years ago, a doctor told me my numbers weren't great. And I really didn't want to go on statins and told him so. And he said, well, let's see what you can do with your diet and up the exercise a little bit. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And, and I did. And the next year, my numbers were really good. So I stuck with that. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm kind of a hard head. So. <laughs> well, those are all, uh, all admirable. And uh, I, I couldn't stick to maybe the smoking, but the others uh, I still need to have some work on. So maybe you can help me with those. But, um, yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, that's the last question I would want to know is uh, what are you working on now? What can we expect to see from you maybe uh, down the road? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And, uh, I mean, this really has been a pleasure. Um, I'm working on a sequel to my novel, Three Hours Past Midnight, that really goes back to that first short story. Um, when I wrote it, I didn't know all these details, but I know now that he and a partner had just held up a bank, and he skidded on ice and rolled the car down into the woods and into that shallow stream. And uh, without going into too great detail, the money that they stole from the bank, he doesn't have, and the money never went back to the bank. And uh, he's curious as to what happened to it. And he's sort of working on the assumption that it's in a cop's pocket somewhere. And he didn't have anything else to do, so he went back out there. He's going out back out there to see what he can scare up. And bank robberies always make for a great... Uh insider of a good novel and a good story. Um, when I was a newspaper reporter in Bradenton, Florida, there were a lot of bank robberies in the Tampa area, and I covered a number as a reporter. I was always fascinated with them. So um, I look forward to uh, your progress on that one and hope to see another, uh, another, I would name the character, but he doesn't have a name. So three hours past midnight. All right. Well, thank you, Tony. Thanks for coming on. Oh, cool. Thank you. You can find us on the web now at writerslatitude.com, and you also can find ways to follow me there on Facebook or Twitter. We'd like to hear your feedback and questions about the podcast if you have them. 
So thanks for joining us. 